Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bernard Reginster. He is Professor of Philosophy at Brown University. His research has focused mostly on issues in ethics, metaethics, and moral psychology in 19th century German philosophy. Uh, his new research interests include the topics of identity and intersubjectivity, for which he, con he considers ideas from psychoanalytic theory, 20th century continental philosophy, and contemporary Anglo-Saxon philosophy. He is the author of several books, and today we're going to focus mostly on the affirmation of life, Nietzsche on overcoming nihilism. So, Dr. Reginster, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me. So, first, uh, let me ask you, because I guess this is an issue even Nietzsche scholars get sometimes. Do you think that his thought was in any way systematic? Because, because he tended to write in an aphoristic style and sometimes it seems a bit fragmentary. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, you're certainly right that, as you pointed out, most of his books are collections of seemingly disparate thoughts on seemingly uh, indefinite uh, amount of topics. And so it's very hard to, to pick up one of his books and say of that book what it is about. I mean, there's a few exceptions. But even the exceptions are, are, are like, for example, the birth of tragedy or the genealogy of morality, which appear to be more systematic books. But even there, it's uh, not always easy to see what the book is about. Uh, so as it turns out, Nietzsche has on occasion said things about systematicity. In particular, there's a famous passage where he explicitly repudiates uh, systematicity in philosophy. But I think that what he means there is... Uh, uh, he's talking about the uh, the ambition of some of the great philosophical systems, for example, in the 19th century, to produce uh, a small step of a small set of principles from which you could deduce, you know, knowledge about everything. And he thinks that that enterprise is uh, is doomed to failure. Uh, but it's also clear that he's interested in. Uh, engaging in some kind of systematic inquiry about specific topics. So, and this becomes much more apparent towards the end of his career where his works continue to return to the same issues, to the same topics, uh, which suggests that he has uh, a fairly well-defined, fairly well-circumscribed set of questions that he's trying to answer. And so his thought might be deemed to be systematic in that, uh, in that more sort of quotidian sense. Mm -hmm. So, going to the central topic of the book I mentioned, uh, what is nihilism? Or, I mean, do you want to give a general definition or a definition of how Nietzsche understood it? Well, I think that Nietzsche understood nihilism in the way in which it is typically understood, you know, in the existentialist tradition, mm -hmm. where it's the view that... Uh, life is meaningless, so to speak, or the view that uh, there, is, uh, there is no point or no reason to live, or at least no point or no reason to live one way rather than another. Um, now, uh, 
this understanding of nihilism is a little different from the way in which is understood in uh, in contemporary philosophy. So in contemporary philosophy, nihilism is a metaethical position according to which nothing really is valuable, nothing really is good or bad, for example. Uh, and in contemporary philosophy, meaningfulness is at least in fairly recent contemporary philosophy, meaningfulness is the characteristic of an activity or a life uh, which it possesses, at least in part by virtue of engaging with really valuable goals, for example. And you can see then how nihilism, the fact that nothing is really uh, valuable, would then lead to meaninglessness. The fact that you know no activity, no life can be meaningful uh, since one of the conditions on meaningfulness is engagement with really valuable goals, and there are no such things. Uh, but uh, but for Nietzsche, as I said, for Nietzsche, nihilism is more broadly speaking the view that uh, that there's there's no point in living. Uh, but then when you when you think about that uh, that sentence, there's no reason to live, or there's no reason to live one way or other than another, you you quickly know that there's a, a subtle ambiguity there. Uh, in the sense that uh, when you say there's no reason to live, what you may mean is that, well, there's no reason to live. That doesn't mean there's there's a reason not to live or anything like that. There's just, there's just no point in living one way rather than another or in living rather than not. And that the basis for that would be the view that, well, nothing is really valuable. And so if nothing is really good or bad, then, you know, whether you're alive or not, whether you live this way or that way is, is basically undecidable on the basis of... Uh, of values, uh, but there's an, another uh, way of understanding the sentence "there is no reason to live," which is uh, to understand it as, in fact, there is a reason not to live. Uh, and in this case, uh, what you have is a very different sense of the claim that life is pointless or not worth living, and so on and so forth, which has, which has to do now not with the fact that. Uh, nothing is really valuable, so we have no evaluative guidance on the basis of which to decide what's worth doing. Uh, now we assume that there are certain things that are worth doing, but life is still not worth living precisely because the things worth doing are radically beyond our reach. They are irretrievably unachievable for us. And so that makes any uh, effort to live, to live a life, the life that's worth living, pointless. And so that leads you then to just uh, to withdraw, to give up, uh, and to think that uh, there's no point in living. So these are the two different senses of uh, nihilism that I distinguish in the book as respectively uh, disorientation and uh, despair. In the case of disorientation, you find yourself bereft of evaluative guidance. You know, we are agents who deliberate about what to do. We are we care about doing what's right or doing what's good, having reasons to do what we do. And suddenly we find ourselves, you know, bereft of the ability to do so. That's very disconcerting. That sense of being disconcerted is what I refer to by as orient disorientation. But then in the other case, the case that Nietzsche uh, is also uh, very interested in, uh, we do have values, we do have a sense of what's worth doing with our lives, but then we also believe that these values and ideals are irretrievably beyond our reach. And so that leads to what we call as hopelessness or despair. Mm -hmm. And to what sources of nihilism did Nietzsche uh, point? 
I mean, what did he think were the sources of it? Well, so, um, so th there is a, so, so the, the problematic of nihilism has roots, you know, has deep roots in the 19th century. I mean, it, you know, uh, Nietzsche finds it in Schopenhauer, but he also finds it uh, in, in Russian writers such as Turgenev, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, I mean, many of those uh, writers were, were very concerned about uh, whether life had a meaning, whether there's a point in existing or a point in doing this rather than that with your life. Uh, and in in the Russian uh, writers specifically, and I have in mind especially Turgenev, for example, uh, sorry, uh, well, Turgenev is one, but especially Dostoevsky, mm -hmm. uh, the root of the problematic is uh, the death, what they call the death of God or the realization that, you know, uh, there is no God, uh, that the religious underpinnings of our evaluative systems, you know, are because have no um, disappear, basically. Um, but when you think about it, uh, it's, it's hard to see how you can sort of infer just from the fact that there's no God to the fact that life is uh, is meaningless. Uh, and so, so Nietzsche feels the need then to uh, uh, to identify what the missing premise might be. Um, so, okay, so let's assume that there is no God. What, why should we infer from this that uh, that life is uh, is meaningless? And so there are two ways in which this can be understood. One way would be to say that, well, if there's no God, then our values have lose their normative authority because what gave our values the normative authority was the fact that they were expressions of God's will. And if there's no God, then they are not expressions of God's will and they cannot be authoritative anymore. So that's that would be uh, nihilism in the contemporary sense. It leads to the notion that nothing is really worth, nothing is really valuable. And if nothing is really valuable, then we find ourselves uh, bereft of uh, practical guidance. Um, but Nietzsche does not, uh, does not hold this view and that for several reasons. I mean, one of those reasons is that uh, uh, he doesn't mention it, but he must have been aware of it, is the notion that uh, trying to find the source of the normative authority of our values in the will of God is uh, philosophically uh, bankrupt to begin with. Um, so that was never a good idea to try to uh, establish the authority of our values by rooting them in the will of God in the first place. Um, and there are other reasons why Nietzsche thinks that uh, uh, nihilism, uh, the nihilism of disorientation is, uh, is in fact quite overcomable. So what he's really interested in is the uh, is nihilistic despair. And there the question becomes the following. If God is dead, why should we despair at the prospect of achieving a life that is worth anything? Um, and so he, he assumes that, well, it's because our conception of what's worth doing, our values, in other words, must be such that in order to be able to realize them, we need God. We need God either as someone who can intervene in the conditions of our life in this world to make them hospitable to the realization of our values, or we need to suppose that there's another world and another life beyond this one in which those values are going to be able to be realized. So in other words, we must hold values that are such that they cannot be realized under the conditions of our life in this world 
without the possibility of some kind of divine intervention in it, or without the possibility of there being another world over which God would preside, in which those values could be realized. So in other words, he claims that nihilistic despair, which he takes to be the crisis gripping uh, his time, is the product of our endorsement of certain types of values. And so he thinks that as a result, that if we want to overcome nihilism, we have to reconsider those values. Mm -hmm. We will get into that reconsideration of values in a second, but just before that, and particularly because we know that at least in his early career as a philosopher and in his early writings, he was very much influenced by Schopenhauer. Uh, is there a relationship between nihilism and pessimism? Yes, so it's a bit, so, so most of Nietzsche's explicit discussions of those terms are in his notebooks, and his notebooks are a bit scattered, mm -hmm. so they're not, they're not systematic, obviously, uh, and so it's a bit unclear uh, whether he thinks that there is a, a distinction between these two terms and precisely what the distinction is. So at times, uh, <clears throat> Nietzsche appears to think that pessimism is the view that uh, the prospects of achieving a life worth living under the conditions of our life in this world are non-existent. So you're pessimist in the sense, you think, well, it, you know, nothing good is ever going to happen here. That's pessimism in that sense. But that doesn't, of course, but that's, uh, that's limited in the sense that it doesn't preclude the possibility that perhaps things might look up once we leave our life in this world and we get to another one, for example. So pessimism, in other words, would be the view that uh, given what our values are, uh, we have no hope of leading a valuable life in this world, but it leaves open the possibility that there's another world in which those values could finally be realized. Uh, nihilism, by contrast, would be pessimism plus the closing off of the possibility I just mentioned. Uh, now, uh, I, I say that this is one way in which he sometimes uses it, because if you look at Schopenhauer's pessimism, the view that Schopenhauer himself uh, uh, calls pessimism, it appears to be much closer to what he himself, Nietzsche, understands by nihilism. I say closer because Schopenhauer does leave the door open to the possibility of some kind of redemption, some kind of what he calls salvation, uh, which is not the way in which the Christian uh, thinks about it, like you, you know, that death is merely a transition to a, a very different kind of life, uh, which is going to be very different from the life that you have been able to live in this world. Uh, but it's a, it's a radical kind of transformation whereby you manage to free yourself from the features of this life that make it uh, not a good life. In, in this case, the case of Schopenhauer suffering specifically. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you now about Nietzsche's enterprise of reevaluating our values. But first of all, you've already mentioned, for example, religion and the authority of God from which our values stemmed, according to Nietzsche, before the 19th century and before what he termed the death of God. Uh, are there any other sources that he mentions from which our values stem? Or 
Oh, so yeah, so so you're asking a very large question here about, <laughs> uh, about uh, uh, his metaethical views. Um, well, so I'm going to give you, you know, so so there's been, I think that in, in many ways, uh, the discussion of Nietzsche's metaethics has, uh, has been very vibrant in the literature over the past at least 20, 30 years. Um, but uh, recently, I think, our two views seem to have garnered some momentum, uh, at least about not these metaethics in general, but what you call the, the origin of values. And one is what you may call a, a form of sentimentalism about value. So sentimentalism is a conception of both uh, the act of valuing what it is to value something or evaluative experience, uh, and also a conception of the objects of evaluative experience, evaluative properties, what they are, and so on and so forth. And uh, and sentimentalism is a view that uh, appeared first in, uh, you know, with philosophers like Hume uh, and, and other people like that, especially uh, British philosophers. It is essentially the idea that uh, our evaluative experience is an expression of our affective experience of things. Mm-hmm. So roughly speaking, uh, when I find something good, when I judge something good, or when I have the attitude uh, of valuing something which our judgment typically articulates, uh, in fact, what I'm doing is I'm expressing a certain kind of affective response to the thing. So if I find it good, I'm going to, have, uh, to express a, a, a feeling of inclination for it. If I find it bad, I'm going to express what, what, what I'm doing is that I'm expressing a feeling of aversion towards it. Um, so that's that's the way in which our evaluative experience is explained in terms of affective experience. Uh, and then uh, Nietzsche, I mean, and many scientists do the same thing. You can go, you take one further step, which consists in saying that evaluative properties, the property that something has to be good or bad, then become themselves subjective properties in the sense that uh, what it is for an object to be good is for this object to evoke a certain kind of subjective response in the agent who finds it good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that sentiment, so that view has become actually quite popular uh, among Nietzsche scholars interested in metaethics. Um, so it's held by I mean I can I can give you a string of names of people who have uh, have adopted. Now recently, I have. Um, developed certain doubts about this view and other people have too. And the main doubt that I have is motivated by the following observation, very simple observation, is that for Nietzsche, when Nietzsche claims to explain our evaluative judgments in terms of affects, he, he, he does say that, right? He has a famous claim, he says, all moralities are sign language, as he puts it, or symptomatology of our affects. What explains our evaluation is our affects. So he says things like that. And it's very tempting to think that he's some kind of sentimentalist in the way I just explained, right? But if you look at the examples he gives of how we can explain a moral value judgment, for example, in terms of a certain affective state, uh, the relationship between the judgment and the affective states that's supposed to explain it is not what it you would expect it to be if he were a sentimentalist. So if you're a sentimentalist, if he were a sentimentalist, he would say that, look, 
my judgment that it is good to help the needy would have to express an inclination towards benevolence or an aversion towards the fact that they are in need or something of that nature. Okay. But as it turns out, what Nietzsche gives an example of how that judgment, it is good to help the needy, uh, is explained in terms of an affective state, you don't have that kind of expressive relation between the judgment and the affective state that expresses it, that, that, that explains it. Okay. So for example, Nietzsche is going to say things like that. Well, what explains why I believe that I should help the needy? Well, the fact that I'm afraid of my parents and my teachers on whom I depend, and so I want to please them. So in this case, you have an affective state, fear, that explains a moral judgment, it is good to help the needy, but it's not as though the affective state itself has for, it, for its object the act of helping the needy or their need. In fact, you know, in this way, I, in, in this type of explanation, even though it's an affective state that explains my judgment, I may not have any kind of feeling towards helping the needy. I may not feel inclined towards it. I may not have any feeling at all. So the connection between the affect and the judgment is a lot more complicated. It's not just a simple expressive relation. And so what I'm now thinking, and other people are following suit, I think, uh, is that uh, the relationship between the affect and the judgment is functional. So in other words, I have a certain affect or a certain kind of affective need, and it helps me to satisfy that need to hold certain value judgments. So Nietzsche would have, in this view, a pragmatic approach to uh, the analysis of value judgments. Uh, and I, I think that uh, that's a very plausible view to attribute to Nietzsche in any case. Uh, and it's uh, and because the the uh, the needs that are uh, that are supposed to be served by value judgments are affective needs. It's still a kind of sentimentalism, but I, I call it sentimental pragmatism instead of sentimentalism proper. Uh, so so this is so in other words, it is our needs that lead us to value the things as we do. Uh, but how they do that is a matter of some. Uh, dispute or some, uh, you know, at least some uh, uh, hesitation. Mm -hmm. So with all of that in mind, according to Nietzsche, how can we go about reevaluating our values? How can we do that? Well, so the revaluation of values can mean different things, right? And so there, there's actually, uh, you know, uh, a bit of a a cottage industry of people trying to understand what Nietzsche actually means by uh, the, the German word is Umwertung. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes I mean, you can translate Umwertung as simply a reversal, right? And so the best example of revaluation in that fairly radical sense would be the shift from what he calls master morality to slave morality in the genius of morality, you know, where basically what was considered good from the standpoint of one morality is now considered evil from the standpoint of the other and vice versa. Okay. So, so revaluation can be, can be just simple, a reversal in that way. So sometimes he talks about it in those terms, but at other times revaluation could simply mean a reconsideration, you know, raising questions about, as he puts it in the preface to the general morality or reconsidering uh, or raising questions about 
whether our value judgments are really valuable, our values are really valuable. And then the question becomes, well, what does he mean by that, right? And maybe he means that, uh, well, we used to think that our value judgments had a certain kind of normative authority, and maybe they don't. So some people think that uh, uh, Nietzsche, when he reevaluates our values, is simply calling into question the claim that they enjoy objective authority. And in fact, he says that, no, the, the source of the authority is purely subjective, which has certain kind of implications as to what, how much authority they really have. Uh, other people claim that, uh, for example, if you take uh, the, um, uh, the pragmatic approach, when he talks about the value of our value judgment, he raises the question of whether the value judgments that we hold are really beneficial to us, whether it's really beneficial to us, whether they really uh, resolve the practical problems they were intended to resolve in the first place. Because as you know, we might operate with certain kind of a, uh, in a certain kind of evaluative climate, because given the circumstances in which we live, that climate can be uh, uh, beneficial to us. But then as the circumstances change, uh, operating on the basis of those particular type of value judgments might actually become harmful to us, you know. So uh, in times of great uncertainty, it might be good for us to operate uh, with martial values, the values of aggression, the values of, uh, you know, military prowess, because it serves us well. Mm -hmm. But in times of peace, you know, uh, continuing to hold those values might actually prove to be disruptive and harmful, right? So, so sometimes what Nietzsche means, and I think that's what he means in the genealogy, in fact, uh, uh, when he talks about reevaluating values, he says asking whether the values that we continue holding have the functional benefits that led us to adopt them in the first place. Right. So, and could you give us some examples of what Nietzsche would classify as life-negating and life-affirming values? Ah, yes. Okay, so, <laughs> uh, so in the book uh, to which you referred, uh, I had a very straightforward definition of what it means for a value to be life-negating, right? A value is life-negating if it is a value that uh, cannot be satisfied under the the conditions of our life in this world. Okay, so a, a, a simple example of this would be uh, achieving what uh, Schopenhauer sometimes call fulfillment, which is, you know, uh, have all our desires satisfied and being completely free from any kind of uh, suffering, which is an ideal in terms of which uh, the great Christian philosophers like Aquinas, for example, uh, which, which, which is what they describe heaven to be like, or life in heaven to be like, you know, is, uh, you know, uh, having everything you want with nothing left to be desired, you know, uh, fulfillment in that sense. And Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, for that matter, uh, argue that uh, that's, that's a value that cannot be realized under the condition of our lives in this world, in part because of the way in which we are psychologically hardwired. So we're not the kinds of people who, because of the way in which uh, our psychologies work, can never hope to achieve fulfillment in that sense. Uh, Nietzsche even goes one step further, and he argues that uh, not only is it impossible for us to achieve that 
that state. But if we were to achieve it, we wouldn't find it very appealing. We couldn't find it appealing. Um, so, so that's that's what I meant at the time, right? No. Uh, more recently, um, some philosophers have argued that uh, what Nietzsche means by what I call the life-negating value, you know, which sometimes is what he means by a nihilistic value, is that there are values that are inimical to what he calls life. And I have uh, a bit of me hesitant about this approach because it's very unclear what Nietzsche means by life. I mean, he defines it in terms of what he calls the will to power, which is not necessarily that much more helpful. He turns, he thinks about the interest of life as interest in self, not just self-preservation, but also growth, you know, expanding your footprint on the environment, that sort of thing. And he argues that certain, the idea would be that values that are life negating are values such that if you endorse them and govern your life in accordance with them are going to impede, you know, self-preservation or growth in that sense. Uh, so arguably the argument that he makes in the genealogy of morality is that Christian values are like that. They are life negating in that sense, that they, uh, they impede the growth, self-preservation. In other words, they are not in the interest of life in that, in that sense. Um, I think that's plausible as a way of understanding Nietzsche. Now, it, it poses rather large philosophical problems. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but when it comes to reevaluating our values, I mean, I think I've already asked this question to other people, including Brian later and uh, Mattia Riccardi, but I, I mean, taking into account the sort of uh, philosophical psychology that Nietzsche had in terms of the sources of our values as you described just a few minutes ago. I mean, to what extent is it really possible for us to uh, overcome that and really, uh, let's say, create new values? Well, I mean, again, you know, how you address that question is going to depend on what metaethics you attribute to Nietzsche, right? So, so let's suppose for a moment that we treat Nietzsche as a kind of sentimentalist about value. So what it is to value something or what it is for something to be valuable is to evoke a certain kind of affective response in us. Mm -hmm. So if you suppose that this is what, you know, values are, uh, then it's not that complicated to imagine that you could reevaluate values in the sense you could change them fairly radically, right? All you have to do is to change the way people feel towards things, okay? And some people have actually argued that uh, this is one reason why Nietzsche uh, presents his ideas in the way that he does. You know, it, it presents his ideas in a way that's uh, very much affect rousing that is going to just get people riled up and so on and so forth. So he uses that peculiar style, he uses that these rhetorical devices precisely because he's in the business of trying to change the way people feel about things. Because by changing the way in which they feel, you also change their values, you see. Uh, and so, I mean, 
you know, along those lines, I mean, you, you, there are some fairly pedestrian examples you can use of new values that have been recently created, right? So, for example, the value of being cool, right? Uh, is there, you know, I'm, I'm, I suspect that people in the 13th century didn't have an inkling that it would be good to be cool. You know, this was not part of their ethical climate, so to speak. This was not on their ethical landscape, right? This is a value that probably has its roots in early romanticism, you know, uh, being an interesting person, cutting a dashing figure and all these sorts of things. And how did that happen? Well, because, you know, somehow someone managed to uh, make people feel attracted to that sort of uh, to that sort of thing, and suddenly it became a value. It became a thing, right? So, so you might you might do it in that particular way, right? Um, now, if you have a different, uh, if you attribute a different metaethics to Nietzsche, you're going to have to come up with a different explanation for how you could change people's values in that way. Um, you know, so if you now look at the sentimental pragmatism that I described a moment ago. Uh, maybe you might do that by, you know, making people see somehow that, uh, or, or make it the case that if people start operating with different values, you know, the practical problems that they are facing are going to resolve themselves more easily. And so it's the it's the functional efficacy or the functional benefits that is going to induce people to buy into the values. So, for instance, you know. Because of the progress of science and technology, uh, we feel that we have a, a much stronger purchase on the control of our lives than we did if we lived in, say, the 12th century. And in the 12th century, then, we felt so little control of our lives that it was, it was essential for a psychological well-being that we believe in a benevolent God watching over us. Well, now we have science. So, you know, we, we, we don't need that belief anymore. And so it kind of erodes and eventually disappears, right? Because we have something else we can hold on to to address our practical problems, you see. So there are different ways in which uh, the transvaluation or the revaluation can take place, but I think that it can take place. You just have to settle on the metaethical view and then see what resources it gives you to be able to understand what Nietzsche means by that. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you a specific question about Nietzsche's views on happiness, because nowadays, particularly in modern industrialized Western societies, uh, people care a lot about happiness and seeking happiness. Uh, was that important for Nietzsche? I mean, the, did he think that people should really seek happiness in life? Yeah. Well, he, he claims that nobody really seeks happiness, only the Englishman does. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, to answer that question, we maybe need to take a step back, right? And, uh, and, uh, and first ask the question, what Nietzsche means by happiness? Because the, okay. the term happiness in the history of philosophy is a very fraught term, mm -hmm. and, uh, and fraught in, in ways that are somewhat unfortunate. Uh, uh, because it can mean all kinds of different things. And uh, very often what people mean by happiness or what people have mean by happiness is basically well-being. So 
a life that goes well for the person living it is a happy life. So happiness was virtually synonymous with well-being. In in some cases, it was even synonymous for a good life overall, period. But that's that's maybe a little going too far. But it's at least been for a long time synonymous with a life that goes well for the person living it. A life that has, to use contemporary terminology, prudential value, as opposed to, say, moral value or let me just ask you one question there. Uh, does it connect necessarily to hedonism or an hedonistic position? Ah. Well, yes. So, so I'm coming to that, right? So, so oh, okay. Uh, so, but in uh, recently, I think that uh, people have come to see that the, the domain of well-being, of what it is for life to go well for the person, is fragmented, uh, and in part it's because there are all kinds of different theories about what 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 it means for something alive, an event in that life to be good for you, right? Yeah. Uh, so some answers are hedonistic, an event is good for you to the extent that it gives you pleasure, or that it that it produces a favorable balance of pleasure over pain. Other yeah. people claim, no, no, what makes a, something good for you is simply the fact that it satisfies a desire you have, and there are other, other ideas besides, okay? So, so more and more, so, so this is one thing. No, the second thing that's worth noting is that, uh, uh, so people don't doubt for a minute, whatever, however you understand happiness, right? You can understand happiness in terms of pleasure, you can understand happiness in terms of desire satisfaction, but whatever you understand happiness to be, it turns out that it's not the only thing that is going to contribute to your life going well for you. It turns out that having a meaningful life, at least if it's understood in a certain way, is also something that, that is good for you. Okay, you're having a life that you consider meaningful may not be benefiting anybody else. It benefits just you. It's, it's good only in the sense that it's good for you. But it turns out, and we know this philosophically, but we also this has also been documented by psychological studies, the psychological state you occupy when you're happy is very different and sometimes even divergent from the psychological state that you occupy when you consider that you have a meaningful life. So, you know, one way to read some of the claims that Nietzsche makes about happiness, like the claim I mentioned a moment ago, that, yeah, only the Englishman wants to be happy, is because that's not the only way in which your life can go well for you. You know, having a meaningful life is another way in which your life can go well for you. And one of the uh, interesting features of meaningfulness is that you have a meaningful life, at least according to some fairly plausible view, you have a meaningful life insofar as what you care about in your in your life, what you devote your life to is not your own well-being, specifically not your own happiness. Okay, so uh, that would explain why Nietzsche sometimes seems to have contempt for the people who seek happiness, right? Because, because you know, he himself thinks that having a meaningful life is at least as good and probably better. And of course, be concerned about the meaningfulness of, of your life means that you sort of, you don't care so much about your own happiness in that way. Uh, <clears throat> now, these are two different uh, ways in which your life can go well for you. And there is not, to my knowledge, a systematic principle that would allow us to adjudicate between them if they are in conflict, you know. So what you can hope for is to have a meaningful life that's also a happy one. But if it turns out that what's going to make your life meaningful diverges from what's going to make it happy, I have no, I have no way to tell you how to make that decision, you know. Uh, but 
the fact of the matter is that those are two different ways in which your life can go well for you. And hedonism typically then is very closely associated to happiness in that more restricted sense. In fact, uh, there are people who argue that uh, what it is to uh, to lead a meaningful life or what makes your life meaningful is that it is a life that engages with your desires except the desire for pleasure. Mm-hmm. So the only the only desire, the satisfaction of which would not make would not give you a sense of meaningfulness is the satisfaction of your desire to be for pleasure. Okay. So you care about that, but insofar as you care about that, your life is not meaningful. Your life becomes meaningful if you care about other things than maximizing your own pleasure. Mm-hmm. But does life uh, necessarily have to be meaningful for us to affirm it? I mean, because uh, I could imagine that if Nietzsche was, and I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but if he was a little bit closer to, let's say, Camus' uh, absurdist view of life, then, I mean, in a certain sense, life wouldn't necessarily have to have an objective meaning attached to it for we to still uh, live it and affirm it. Or... Right, right. Yeah, very good. Um, so, yeah, so, so in, in, in the book, I think I, I had too restrictive an understanding of what it means for life to be meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I assumed that m- meaningfulness and affirmability were interchangeable, that if your life is meaningful, then it's worthy of affirmation and vice versa. <clears throat> But it turns out that that depends on how you understand meaningful. So in the book, I understood meaningful simply in the following way. So meaningful, your life is meaningful if it is engaged in the pursuit of really valuable goals that are achievable. Okay. Period. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, uh, you can find yourself engaged in the pursuit of really valuable goals that are achievable without it making your life worthy of affirmation in your eyes and maybe in a more maybe sophisticated understanding of the term it's not suffice to make your life meaningful so there's a, an example that's discussed by uh, philosopher Susan Wolf who has written a lot about meaningfulness recently <coughs> which is the example of what she calls the alienated housewife. And the housewife, the alienated housewife is somebody who uh, toils, you know, day and night to ensure the welfare of her family. And we have no reason to think that she doesn't regard that as a, as a really worthwhile undertaking. And it's achievable, right? She is, in fact, in the terms of the example, she's successful at it, okay? Mm-hmm. But saying that she's alienated is saying that even though she recognizes that this is a good thing, even though she's good at it and successful at it, it doesn't, this is not a life that she would want to live all over again. This is not a life that in Nietzsche's terms she would affirm. And according to Wolf, this is not a life that she would find meaningful. And what's missing there is precisely what you mentioned is emphasized in Camus is the subjective element of, you know, uh, finding the activity attractive. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
being subjectively engaged by the activity. So philosophers distinguish between judging something to be valuable from valuing it, actually valuing it. And I can, so what, what happened in the case of the, of the housewife is that she judges what she does to be valuable. Mm -hmm. She's really valuable and she's successful at it, but she doesn't value it. That is to say, she's not sort of subjectively engaged in it. It doesn't exercise her. It does not arouse her interest. She would rather be doing something else. She's not attracted to it. And so she derives no sense of personal or subjective fulfillment from it. Okay. And th this is, I think, uh, an, a crucial element of whether you call it meaningfulness or affirmability or, you know, it doesn't really matter. But it's a crucial uh, uh, element that I, that I omitted in the book. And that Nietzsche at times talks about. I mean, sometimes there's a famous passage in the gay science where he argues that nihilism is a failure of desire. You know, so you, you, can, you can find things to be really valuable. You can judge them to be really valuable and be completely not engaged by them subjectively. And in this case, you know, your condition is just as bad as if nothing was really valuable to you. You know, because... Okay, so I, I can see that this is a good thing to do. I just have no interest in doing it myself. Uh, and so you still find yourself bereft of guidance, you know, not I mean, seeing no point in, in doing one thing rather than another. I mean, you can see that some are good, but they don't engage you. So you might decide to do them on that basis, but it's still not going to make your life fulfilling or meaningful in your eyes. Yeah. I was just trying to understand if, uh, according to Nietzsche's view, it would be possible for him to, for example, accept that someone would live a life knowing that ultimately uh, the person is going to die and everything that she's done eventually, even if it's in a very long time, millions, billions of years will account for nothing, particularly more so if uh, humanity goes extinct at, at some point or the universe just ends. I mean, with all of that in mind, if we could still affirm life without finding it meaningful, or I mean, if we can just go about finding what what we do moment by moment subjectively meaningful without attributing any objective uh, meaning to it right yeah good good so okay so what, what you you're putting your finger here on an important distinction that um, that's been made again fairly recently by philosophers who work on meaningfulness mm -hmm. And it's a distinction between uh, talking about the meaning of life, for example, in, in this very in this very broad metaphysical terms that you just described, you know, uh, I mean, what's the point of living even a life that would have more value, given that, you know, humanity will be wiped out from the universe, you know, fairly soon in cosmic time. So what's the point of doing it at all? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it's. And in the long term, it's going to make no difference whatsoever. Uh, and then there's a different sense of meaningfulness, which philosophers uh, talk about, uh, you know, they, they want to emphasize that they have something much more restricted in, in mind by describing it as meaning in life. Mm. You know, 
And meaning in life is what I have been talking about, you know, and what uh, philosophers like Susan Wolf and others talk about. And it's the, the characteristic of a characteristic that your life possesses, you know, in order to have a certain kind of value for you, in order to, to be, you know, a life that is good for you to have. Okay. Uh, and that, of course, is a conception of meaning that supervenes on characteristics of that life as it unfolds, not on the relation of that life to uh, the rest of the life of the universe, so to speak. Now, the interesting question here, as you know, is what conception of meaningfulness did Nietzsche have in mind, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he talks about the, the affirmation of life, at least in connection with his famous, uh, um, his famous test of affirmation, the, the eternal recurrence, he seems to me to be talking about meaning in life. So in that very restricted conception of meaning, uh, he doesn't talk about, you know, how my little life as this little person, Bernard, you know, this going to span a few, a few years, like almost nothing in a tiny little planet in the, immensity of the universe, whether, whether it, how could it be meaningful, how could it matter at all, right? This, I don't, I don't get the sense that this is what he, he really is concerned about, but, you know, um, I could be wrong, but um, in my judgment, he doesn't worry about that. Yeah, yeah, that, that was what I was trying to understand, if he was even aware, of course, he should have been aware of, of those issues, but if he even think we should care about it from that more universal, let's say, perspective. Well, hmm. I mean, he may have views about this. Um, I mean, when he talks about, you know, so he seems to be leaning in that direction uh, in early works like The Birth of Tragedy, when he talks about, you know, the um, sort of uh, identifying with the, the one, as he puts it, identifying with the, the whole of the universe. And that might be a way of making your individual tiny life meaningful by by seeing it as part of that grand uh, life of the universe so to speak you know uh, so so to give you an analogy uh, some people might find their professional activity meaningful insofar as it's part of a family tradition yeah. so that what makes it meaningful to them is the connection of their particular life to something that goes, you know, well be beyond them in the past and hopefully will go well beyond them in the future. Mm -hmm. And so imagine that you do this not just with your family, but you do that with the universe. Uh, and so you might get a sense of why people would find comfort in seeing their own lives as however tiny, however seemingly insignificant, uh, by seeing them as part of this much bigger thing, you know. Um, and sometimes people, when they describe 
the experience of meaningfulness, they describe it as an experience of being connected to something larger than themselves. Now, this is a very loose metaphor and it could be interpreted in all kinds of ways, but uh, but that, that might be, you know, sometimes he, he certainly gestures in that direction, but when he talks about affirmability, when he talks about uh, the revaluation of values and things like that, he seems to me to be concerned about what I've called meaning in life. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. So what about suffering? How did Nietzsche look at suffering and what role did he think suffering played in people's lives? Ah, this is a big topic. And, uh, you know, so I have, I've thought more about it since the book. Um, so one interesting question is whether he has a loose, broad understanding of suffering, where suffering and pain are the same thing, basically, they're different words for the same phenomenon, or whether, on the contrary, and a little bit like Schopenhauer, he thinks that pain and suffering are distinct phenomena. And I tend to think that even though he, he uses the terms interchangeably, and so does Schopenhauer for that matter, I tend to think that they have different things in mind, right? And the way in which you can see this is by considering the fact that uh, um, pain, so if you, if you define pain as a, as a particular type of sensation, mm -hmm. uh, it's perfectly possible for somebody to feel pain and not to mind it. In fact, it's perfectly possible for people to feel pain and even to welcome it. You know, if you're a masochist of certain kind, you're going to uh, enjoy your pain, right? And there's all, of course, these strange neurological cases of people who suffer from something called asymbolia. And these are people who feel something which they describe as pain, but they claim that they don't mind it. They say it's pain, you know, because, <clears throat> you know, they, they become asymbolic because of maybe a brain lesion, so they, they recognize something as an experience of pain, but they don't mind it, okay? <clears throat> no, uh, it's very hard to say in those kinds of cases that what, what's happening to them is that they're suffering, right? Because if they welcome the pain or if they don't mind it, you know, that's not suffering. So suffering might have to be restricted for experiences that go against your will, which is how Schopenhauer defines it, right? So an experience that's unwanted, an experience that, you know, that goes against uh, what what you want or what's uh, what, against your will would be strictly speaking an experience of suffering so you can have experiences of pain that are not experiences of suffering for for Nietzsche or for Schopenhauer okay. so, so it would be an experience that someone a particular subject subject would subjectively deem negative is that that's right, right. that is exactly right okay so, so that would be so so the element of aversion the element of you know uh, reluctance uh, would be definitive of suffering, but it's not definitive of pain. Okay. Be so be I mean, because as as you said, someone in different circumstances can experience pain and not deem it as a negative experience, right? That's right. Because they, for example, attributed some meaning. Well, it it. it Okay, so that's tricky. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, perhaps yeah, yeah. I introduced uh, something here. Yeah, yeah, that right. I so, so I'm going back to the business about meaning. So, uh, uh, so if again, take the case of, uh, you know, uh, 
the pain of the masochist, right? I mean, uh, so to give an example that I, I found in a book one, uh, one time, so suppose that you have a loose tooth, right? And every time you touch it with your tongue, you have this flash of pain, sensation of pain. Yeah. But but you, you keep doing it because you kind of, you know, you keep doing it. Now, it's, it's very hard to describe this as an experience of suffering, but it would also be equally hard to describe what you feel as not pain, because it is pain. What, what, if you're masochist, what you mm. want is the pain, right? Uh, so, you know, there's this famous joke, right? The, the, the masochist asks the sadist, please hit me, you know, please hurt me. And the sadist says no. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, yeah, I know this joke. Okay. Yeah. All right, so so there's a difference between feeling pain and and suffering. So suffering is when something happens that goes against your will. Okay, and I think that uh, Nietzsche is primarily interested in in the latter, in suffering, in so far as something that 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 the, the experience of resistance or, or, or against what you want, against your will. Uh, and so the question, and of course, it's experience of, of of, uh, uh, you know, uh, suffering as kind of frustration, you know, or deprivation of something that you want. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the question is, uh, so for, for, for Nietzsche, suffering, initially for, for the tradition, suffering is bad because it, it goes against what you want. So it, it, it's bad, in, at least in that sense. Uh, <clears throat> but in in the book to which you referred, Nietzsche famously is trying to show, well, but maybe let's think about this. Is this really bad? Do we, would we want to be free from all suffering in that sense? You know, would we want there to be no obstacles, uh, no resistance to our getting what we want, right? And, and he famously argues, no, because we have a fundamental desire for achievement and achievement requires as a condition of its possibility the experience of resistance the experience of difficulty the experience of frustration so it requires suffering as an ingredient i mean it's not that we want a life that replete with you know suffering that that is pointless we want to achieve we want the suffering eventually to be overcome but what we what benefits us what we want when we find valuable is the activity of confronting and eventually overcoming that resistance so it's not just it's not just the, the moment of success, you know, that matters to us. It's the whole process. In fact, you might argue that the very concept of success designates not just one moment in life, but the whole string of moments. And among those moments, there are going to be moments of suffering. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the, that's the whole thing that you want. And one of the considerative ingredients of that, of that sequence is going to be suffering. So this is the way in which he proposes to revalue suffering. Once you recognize the value that we place on achievement, once you recognize that what he calls greatness is always a characteristic of achievement, then you have to recognize that our suffering is not a bad thing, not a thing that we should try to get rid of entirely. In fact, it's an ingredient of the good. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you a question about a specific topic in Nietzsche's work, which I find very interesting. Uh, that is the distinction he makes between master and slave morality. Uh, so from the perspective of uh, the affirmation of life, uh, did Nietzsche have any views on uh, if a master would lead what would be a better life 
than a slave or uh, or or uh, is it that he didn't think about that or it didn't have that sort of implications well yeah so that <laughs> that's okay so that that brings us more to the more recent work i have done um, mm -hmm. so the the first thing to note is that so Nietzsche does speak about what he calls the higher human beings or the higher individuals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he describes them as having certain qualities of character, such as nobility. Mm -hmm. And nobility is a characteristic that was uh, highly valued and prevalent in the cultures that were are, as it were, framed by master moralities, which are, are essentially aristocratic moralities. But even though there's this kind of uh, overlap, it's not clear to me that what he calls masters are the same as what he calls the higher man. Okay, okay. So, so higher man is what you may call an ethical category. It designates uh, a type of person you would want to emulate because they display certain uh, virtues, for example. Um, whereas the type of the master is more like a, a, a social psychological category. Uh, and master morality designates a particular type of uh, ethical uh, framework that was, that was the most sort of a prevalent type of framework in human societies prior to Christianity. And Christianity constitutes a pivotal moment in the history of humanity, according to Nietzsche, precisely because it introduces radically new type of uh, ethical outlook. Now, what does Nietzsche have in mind here? I mean, those are state morality, master morality, those are fairly stylized or fairly simplified, you know, abstract categories. But they clearly, in his view, reflect or, or refer to uh, historical uh, historical phenomena, historical uh, ethical uh, climates. And so my my guess, I mean, I've I've only recently begun to work on this, but my my guess is that master moralities refer to uh, what you may call honor moralities, especially competitive honor moralities. So honor moralities that uh, involve sort of very hierarchical social systems, you know, where the people on the top have value and are, you know, are that, that is not shared by the people on the bottom. Whereas slave moralities, the paradigm of which is a Christian morality, is more like the moralities that are, is, is basically the, the, the type of morality that is instantiated not just by Christianity, but all by all the secular uh, post-enlightenment variants of of, uh, of uh, Christian morality, so Kantian uh, Kantian morality, uh, utilitarian morality, and, and and things like that. Uh, and and the, the central difference is that in in the honor moralities, I mean, there, there's a lot of differences, but a crucial difference is that in the honor moralities, there's as Nietzsche puts it, a difference of value between one human being and another. So not not all human beings have the same fundamental worth. Whereas the central feature of slave moralities is that they uh, every human being has the same uh, 
uh, as a as a shares a, a fundamental worth, a, a, an equal fundamental worth, mm -hmm. which, for example, the Kantians call dignity, you know, uh, and is the basis for the idea of human rights and things of that nature. Um, there's other differences between the two, right? I mean, so honor moralities, there's no entitlement, there are no rights in honor moralities. On, you know, your honor is something that you have to earn at the end of your sword if you need to. Whereas uh, uh, in slave moralities, uh, they are entitlements. So the fact that you are endowed with dignity is the basis for your ba you're having certain basic rights, you know, and you don't have to do anything to uh, uh, to secure those rights. There are, this is, there are things that are owed to you in virtue of the fact that you're human. Not so in the kind of honor moralities that I think Nietzsche has in mind when he talks about master moralities. So, so you see, slave moralities and master moralities are simply sort of, a, you know, anthropological categories for him that he uses in order to try to explain, you know, uh, where the values that have not become predominant, Christian values, Christian moral values, how they, how they came about, where they came from. Okay, whereas the categories of the higher man, for example, is uh, is an ethical category in the sense that you know what you want is to have the life of a higher man if you can manage it. Um, so I I'm not sure if it answers your question, but yes, I think it does. So uh, I would like to ask you then one last question, also to sort of wrap things up and summarize what we've been talking about a little bit. So, according to Nietzsche, how can one overcome nihilism? Because that's also the subtitle of your book. Right. So, uh, again, if you follow the line that I took in the book, then uh, the, the, the chief problem is that what Nietzsche calls our highest values, our most important values, are life-negating values values that are such that they cannot be realized under the conditions of our lives in this world. And then you add to that the fact that there is no other life. And then all we're left with is nihilistic despair. Mm -hmm. So the solution, according to Nietzsche, is uh, or the way out of nihilistic despair is to make us realize that, in fact, you know, if you if you reflect very closely on your ethical sensibility, you're going to to discover that uh, uh, it's not the case that all of our highest values are life-negating values. For example, we're going to discover that we value achievement, we value great human achievements, and those are such that they require suffering. So it's not true that we want to get rid of suffering, as it turns out. And once you realize that, then you can become more hopeful again, and you are out of nihilistic despair. Now, if you have a different view of nihilism, Right, according to which uh, nihilistic values are are values that are that you know operating according to which is not in the interest of life, then you have to you know do something else. You have to uh, to point out that you know some values are going to be more in the interest of life than others, and and so on and so forth. Which is in some sense what he's trying to do in the in the geology of morality is trying to show that, well, look, if you if you operate according to Christian values, you're going to see that it's it's not even in your best interest. Given what your motivations are for operating according to those values, you know, they will backfire on you. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm less, you know, um, you know, I, I need to think more about that, that possibility. 
Okay, so I guess that perhaps somewhere in the future and also uh, mentioning again some of the topics we talked about in the latter part of the interview, like uh, suffering and slave and master morality, maybe somewhere in the future we can have another talk to <laughs> when you have more work on that. And again, the book, and I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview, is The Affirmation of Life, Nietzsche on Overcoming Nihilism. Uh, Dr. Register, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find you and your work? Well, my, uh, obviously, my, uh, my research profile on the Brown University website would be the place to do it. Yeah. Uh, I updated periodically uh, so that would be a place certainly okay so thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show it's been a real pleasure to talk to you oh thank you I, i'm I'm, uh, I'm very grateful and very honored that you had me thank you ricardo hi guys thank you for watching this interview until the end if you like what i'm doing please share it leave a like hit the subscription button all of those things you already know and please consider supporting the show either on paypal or patreon all of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at one dollar per month so it would be a great help this show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently check their website at nlights.com I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Kassan, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punta, Radana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidis, Amaf Zal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vangnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardos France, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.